Hi, I'm Carrie. And I'm Emily. And we are the voices of Tarbis. In a nutshell, we travel to different historical places and events and we blog about them. But we wanted to try a different medium, so we're branching out into podcasts. Each week we'll have a chat about different periods of history, important events and extraordinary people in one way or another. And we'll round it all off with a relevant, ridiculous death. So, sit back, grab a drink and enjoy Tarbis After Hours. For this week's episode, we've done something fairly relevant to something we've done recently. Yes. Um, every once in a while there comes a, a figure, a, a character, shall we say, that divides opinions and some people hate to love, some people love to hate. I'm talking in Game of Thrones, Joffrey Baratheon. Mm. In Harry Potter, Professor Umbridge. In Horrible Histories, The Rat. Yes. And in history, Oliver Cromwell. Ooh, this this sound makes me recoil. Now, disclaimer, he's not our favourite historical figure. He is not. You may notice that. But in the spirit of true historical learning, we will try and be objective tonight and report the facts as we know them. So, why have we done Oliver Cromwell? Well... As I said, it was quite relevant. Um, the other night, well, last night, in fact, um, we went to his house to do a ghost hunt in Ely. Yeah, we did. We uh, have never done a ghost hunt before, um, but this is the first one that we'd seen that had any historical relevance. So we thought, why not go along to Oliver Cromwell's house in the middle of September and stay there till one in the morning doing a ghost hunt? Because why wouldn't we? We get, you know, free reign around the house throughout the night. So it was, it was interesting to see it after dark yeah. and see that aspect of it. And the house is it's very well presented. It's um, it's very well cared for. Yeah, definitely. And um, Ely, they, they do a fantastic job with it. It's also the home of the Visitors Information Centre mm-hmm. in Ely. So if you do get a chance, then by all means, definitely go to it. It's not yeah. just for a ghost hunt, but during the day, it's, it's fantastic. Mm-hmm. And the staff there are great. So we thought, in light of that, we would talk about Cromwell. Yep. Yeah. And admittedly, even though we don't particularly like him, we didn't know that much about him. So this has been a learning curve for us. Yeah, it's I've kind of stayed away from him personally. Obviously, we know about the Civil War, mm-hmm. but I guess I'm quite a royalist, so I have hasn't really appealed to me to learn about Cromwell. And some of the things we've found out have not shocked me per se, but. Um, Sorry, motorbike's just gone by outside. <laughs> yeah, anyway. Um, it's like, you can kind of sympathise with him a little bit more. Yeah, you can see where he's coming from. Um, and I will I will openly say, I think the Civil War is woefully undertaught in schools. Yeah. Woefully undertaught. There's a lot about British history that is, but that's just a personal gripe of mine. So... Obviously, we've researched it. If there's anything that you'd like to know more of, we will put some information and our sources in the show notes. Um, but if there's also anything that we have gotten wrong, yes, by all means, please let us know because we that's how we learn. Yep, and we're not necessarily going to speak with regards to the Civil War. That'll be a different episode entirely on its own. This is purely just Cromwell. Yeah. So, let's begin. Yes. The first thing we need to know about him is when he was born. Mm-hmm. He was born in Huntingdon in Cambridge on the 25th of April, 1599, to Robert and Elizabeth Cromwell. Yeah, um, he wasn't technically a descendant of Thomas Cromwell, 
he was the chief um, minister to Henry VIII. Yeah. However, his great-great-grandfather, Morgan Williams, married Catherine Cromwell, who was Thomas's sister. Mm-hmm. And they got married in 1497. Um, but their sons took the Cromwell surname to honour Thomas. Yeah. And it was repeated going down the line. Um, interestingly enough, though, we have found out that following the restoration of the monarchy, um, when Charles II became king, the family often reverted back to the William surname instead of Cromwell to try and distance themselves from the Cromwell link. Which, to be fair, the, you know, the changing scene at the time, that was, that was quite yeah. a smart move. Now, um, Cromwell himself, his, his early life isn't very well documented. I mean, no. we know some of the basic stuff. Like, we know he went to Huntington Grammar School, um, which is now the Cromwell Museum. Um, and then he went to Sydney Sussex College in Cambridge. Um, but beyond that, we don't know much about him and his youth. No. Um, his, his father, Robert, died in June 1617. Um, and because of that, Oliver was the only surviving boy in his family. Um, there was him and seven sisters. Wow. And being the only man, he had to then support them and his widowed mother. So he left Cambridge without completing his degree and he went back to support them on the inheritance he got from his father, which enabled him to become a, a, a minor landowner, collecting rent, farm, managing farmland, things like that. Yeah. And he supported them and he also supported his wife, Elizabeth Borshear. I'm not entirely sure if I've said that right. Um, whilst studying law at Lincoln's Inn in London is when he met her. Um, and she was the daughter of a London merchant, Sir James Borshear, and um, they actually had connections to the largely Puritan gentry in Essex. So that's where the Puritan link first really comes in. His wife. Yeah. Um, they had... I mean, they had um, nine children. Six of those survived to adulthood. So he's looking after his mother... Um, who apparently outlived his father by 37 years. Wow. Back in those days, that is a a big... Not only to be alive past, like, 50s, but actually outlive your husband by such a large amount. Yeah. And all of his, his sisters, who were, at the time of his father's death, they were all unmarried. So not only would he have to care for them, he would also have to provide dowries for them, find suitable matches for them. Wow. be the man of the house um, and then look after his own children so nine, six survived to adulthood so he had to survive. He had to support them all on the income that he received um, from what he bought from that inheritance so obviously he had to be quite frugal but they were still classed as gentry so he obviously did well yeah um, he, they started out in Huntingdon he moved to St Ives in Cambridgeshire not, not the one in, uh, is it Cornwall? Yeah. yeah, not to be confused with that one. And that was in 1630s. And in 1636, he then moved to Ely, which is um, where the house is today. He inherited that from his uncle. Um, and, and that's not actually too far from where we we live, in King's Inn. No, not really. Strangely enough. Yeah. And um, if you do get a chance to go to Ely, absolutely gorgeous city, fantastic cathedral, really, really definitely Very worth beautiful. visiting. Very What? <laughs> <laughs> Um, the house itself, we learned last night, is um, it dates back to the 12th century. Mm-hmm. And there's bits like the kitchen dates back to the 12th century. And every century thereafter, there's been a bit added onto the house, um, including like the, the most recent century, obviously, with the, with the gift shop. Yeah. And there's, uh, there's Cromwell-themed beer, parliamentarian, like alcohol, and little Cromwell mugs. Because, you um, know, everybody needs a mug. Why not? Um, and personally, for me, I thought the house was actually quite modest. 
Yeah, it was actually. I mean, thinking about it, there's there only a couple that of many rooms. rooms. No, and it was, it was quite. I mean, it looked fairly imposing, and it's it's weird because you'd think it would be surrounded by parkland or set off on its own. It's not. It's right on the roadside, isn't it? Yeah. Um, it's kind of blinking. You'll miss it. The only thing that really makes it stand out is the fact that there's a plaque on the wall. Yeah. Um, and it's a very obvious sort of um, not Tudoresque, but that sort of time period building with the yeah. white and the the black. Yeah, like the the black beams all running through mm-hmm. it. Yeah, no, it's um, I mean, it's it is very very modest, and it it doesn't take long to get around. But there's some interesting um, displays and interactive displays there, yeah. and everything that you can you can talk to. Um, so it's it's very interesting and very good how they've done it, um, and the fact that that is it's a house that passed through the family and then was it was sold off, um, but he inherited it from his uncle, um, and apparently. In Ely is where he received what he termed his spiritual awakening in the 1630s. So that's when he became the devout Puritan that we know. Mm. The guy that didn't like Christmas, mm. um, made mince pies illegal on Christmas Day. They still are. Banned sports, makeup, plays. <laughs> basically anything that was fun. fun. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, being the theatre geeks and Christmas lovers that we are, that's probably one of the reasons he's not our favourite person. I'm obsessed with Christmas, so yeah. You you actually are. I mean, I've I've never seen anyone so excited to see stuff in the shops in September. My birthday's in December. It's the only time I ever get to celebrate. <laughs> okay, you forgive him. Um, yeah. So, what happened? I mean, his when he got his spiritual awakening, he was just an MP at the time. MP for Cambridge. Um. He didn't. He wasn't really involved in politics on a national scale. That that didn't really come until the 1640s. Yeah. So at this point, he's just sort of starting out, and this is when because the Civil War it's technically split into two. There was two civil wars. Yeah. Um. And obviously, we, as I said, we'll we'll cover that at a later date. But um, I mean, at this point, he's he's just a little. He's a new starter, isn't he? Yeah. But with regard to the Civil War on for Cromwell mm-hmm. uh, the first English civil war broke out in 1642 mm-hmm. Cromwell himself was promoted quickly to lieutenant general of the Eastern Association army yeah. which was the largest army at the time and um it ma- they made him it made him second in command um so then he was promoted again to a second in command of the main parliamentary army mm-hmm. um they were the new model army and this was in 1945 so when it broke out in 42 Nineteen forty-five. My bad. Sixteen forty-five. <laughs> Close enough. A couple of centuries difference. Yeah. Uh, yeah. My dyslexic brain turned the six upside down. In fairness, we were up until one o'clock at Cromwell's house yeah. last night. So yeah. Right. Um. Yeah. So sorry. Yeah. New model army. Sixteen forty-five. Yeah. So in literally only in three years, he's gone from being second in command into um the Eastern Association Army mm-hmm. to being second in command of the main parliamentary army. From from what I've read, he was quite the military commander. Mm. I mean, he he was a pretty he was a pretty damn good soldier, um, to give him his dues. So that's I mean, it's it's one hell of a promotion. He pretty much skyrocketed, but it's not necessarily surprising. Yeah. So what what happened with the second one then? Well, when civil war broke out for the second time in sixteen forty eight. Um, in, de- in December, there was a division in Parliament mm-hmm. um, before the MPs who supported Charles I and the Rump Parliament, which included Cromwell. Um, they felt that, the, uh, that only a trial and an execution of Charles I um, would stop the wars. Yeah. 
Um, 59 MPs, again, including Cromwell, signed the King's death warrant and Charles I was executed in 1649. If I remember rightly, I think Cromwell's is the third signature on there. So the third one down, third person to sign that death warrant. He was pretty keen. Yes. I mean, obviously, we we'll, we said we'll cover the Civil War. We'll also cover Charles yeah. himself. Um, but I think one of the main bugbears was his idea that he could rule without a parliament. He didn't need the parliament. He dissolved it for 11 years, didn't he? Yeah. And then um, there was the divine right of kings where he believed that he had a God-given right to be king. Both him and his father, James I, believe that. Um, so that was kind of a bugbear. And the fact that it was a Protestant country... Um, these were Puritans in Parliament, and he had a Catholic wife. Probably didn't go down well either. Oh no! But it's. I think ever since Henry VIII, there's been a lot of religious ugh in England. That's the best way I can describe it. It's just kind of <laughs> it's back and forth. Like a pendulum. The best thing is I remember watching disclaimer watch horrible histories, um, where they have the pendulum swing between Catholicism and protestantism in england yeah and it's ridiculous in a very short amount of time how many different times england had a different religion it's it's dizzying i mean you wouldn't know you wouldn't know what you were worshipping from one month to the next would you all because of amberlin if amberlin had just given it up to henry then <laughs> it'd be fine but she teased him and was like no not until we're married and then look what's happened yeah Loads and loads of problems and a project because <laughs> Henry couldn't keep it in his pants. That should be on a slogan somewhere for England. I'm just going to embroider that on a cushion. <laughs> <laughs> because Henry VIII couldn't keep it in his pants. <laughs> um, we do recommend Horrible Histories, by the way. Um, it's not just for kids. It's We've learned a lot from it. It's a great show. It is fun. It is, it is fun. And obviously the books by Terry Deary are fantastic as well. Yep. She says looking at a box of said books. <laughs> You know what? You're never too old. Never. Never too old. Um, we what, digress. We digress. Yeah, we, we digress massively. What then happened is um, after Charles I, I nearly said Charlie then, that's the name of your hamster. <laughs> <laughs> after Charles I was executed, England then became a commonwealth. And um, to replace the monarchy, instead of like a monarchy, they had what was called a council of state. Um, and there was... Be- there was a lot of dissent um, and royalist support in places like Scotland, obviously, because the Stuarts were Scottish, yeah. and in Ireland as well. And um, Cromwell, being the military commander that he was, he led, I'm going to say successful. Really? Yeah, he led successful military campaigns um, in Ireland in 1649 and Scotland in 1650. However... It depends entirely on who you talk to, whether they were good or not. (laughs) Because, obviously, they were successful, there was no doubt about that. However, whether they were good or not is... He's not a very well-liked figure in Ireland. Okay. Um, The reason for that is mostly what happened in Joida, which is just north of Dublin. Um, When he was there, he... They garrisoned a regiment of... um, There was about... 3,000 roughly royalist and Irish confederate soldiers um, commanded by a guy called Arthur Aston, um, who we will come back to at the end. And they had they laid siege to the place and after about, th- about a week um, 
their Cromwell's forces, they, they breached the walls of the town. Um, they offered a chance of surrender to Aston. He refused, um, and Cromwell ordered no quarter be given. That's basically anything goes, more or less. Um, the majority of the garrison and the Catholic priests were killed. There is also reports that civilians died in the attack. Um, it's been disputed. Yeah. And there's been a lot of books published, a lot of research done into it that it's been disputed just how much happened. I mean, obviously, civilians would, would get caught in it. There's nothing you can do about it. Um, but because of that, he was... It's been dubbed a massacre. And there are people out there who consider him a war criminal because of that. Um, he also... There was a lot of other resulting battles, um, particularly Wexford, Waterford, Doncannon. Um, in, I mean, in uh, Wexford, there was another one where they broke into the town whilst surrender negotiations were ongoing. So the town, again, was trying to... At this point, they hadn't been offered surrender. They were trying to surrender. They broke in and killed 2,000 soldiers and 1,500 townspeople and burnt much of the town. Now, that we know there were, there were people killed. There were civilians killed. So, whilst he was trying to... The end game there was to unite England, Ireland, Scotland, all together under the Commonwealth. And they did. They they made it the Commonwealth of England, Ireland, Scotland. Um, however, probably not the best way of going about it. No. But, uh, yeah, he's he's not a very popular figure in Ireland because of that. Yeah, you can kind of see, see why. Yeah. But because of this, because of his military actions, I mean, whatever you think of them personally, they were quite decisive and they were obviously effective. They named him Lord General of the Parliamentary Armed Forces in 1650. And then in 1653, in December, he became Lord Protector. Mm. He held that title uh, for five years until he died. Yes, and this is where I think he was slightly, largely a bit of a hypocrite. Personally, <laughs> personally, um, he was offered the crown by Parliament. Mm. So all of this happened. He killed the king. They got rid of a monarchy, and he then he was he was offered the crown. Yeah. So he re- he rejected it, which I think you know, if he hadn't have done, it would have been worse. Mm. But he rejected it. Instead, he referred to himself as the Watchman of the Commonwealth. Fair enough. He was addressed as Your Highness. Yeah. That's where it gets a little bit... That sticks in my throat slightly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he apparently, at the start of it, when you had the Rump Parliament ongoing, he sort of supported the idea of having a monarchy as a sort of a figurehead, with Parliament, all the power being in Parliament, but having a monarch as a figurehead. Literally just a more or less a puppet. Um, but when they realised that wasn't going to work with Charles, that's when they killed him. But, yeah, 100% it is incredibly hypocritical yeah so uh whilst he was effectively king in all but name uh the instrument of government constitution created by parliament stated that in order to call or dissolve a parliament he must receive a majority vote from the council of state okay that is uh, an idea that the english monarch is unable to govern without the consent of parliament Mm -hmm. and that is still upheld today see as a royalist that kind of I don't believe that ultimate power should rest with the monarchy. No. But I also believe that the monarch should not be a toothless tiger. No. Um, I, I think that... Yeah, I don't I th- think Lizzie is 
queen is. No, Queen, queen Elizabeth is, is a formidable woman. She is. I mean, in, in the most respectful way, Mum, you are a battle axe. <laughs> I mean, she's an amazing woman. But, um, yeah, I think that... I think that if they would see Parliament today, I think they would be disappointed at what it's become. Because it has... I mean, obviously, they were trying to get rid of this whole power for the unworthy. Yeah. And yet that's in an extent. Personally, my, my personal opinion. Yeah. My opinions are my own here. Um, I think that's what that's what we've got now. I think it, it shifted from the monarchy to Parliament. And I think that... The, it's all just a bit messy in England at the moment. It is, but to be fair, we are currently trying to leave the EU, so it's, it's going to be all up in the air until we can get ourselves going back to the Pirates from last week on an even keel. Hey. So, yeah, yeah. Um, the interesting thing about Cromwell, though, and another slightly hypocritical thing, mm. um, didn't want the power with the monarchy, didn't want the power with the uh, the cavaliers, the, the royalists, the gentry that didn't deserve that power, mm-hmm. but didn't want like level suffrage he wanted the votes to be with the gentry only or people landowners people of particular social status only so it's like yes equality everybody's got the right to vote except you peasants yeah because he wasn't one he never no. has been no i mean he he probably wasn't he wasn't rich by by any stretch of the imagination but no but he, he wasn't was still a peasant entitled. yeah he still had that level of privilege yeah. there and yeah, referred to as your highness. Um, no, he. I mean, he probably wasn't the happiest of people. I mean, anyone that doesn't eat mince pies at Christmas probably isn't. Not just mince pies. Doesn't have Christmas. Doesn't. I mean, they they would have gone to mass and celebrated it because it's still. That would be fun. Yeah, in the calendar. And fun <laughs> yeah. is sinful. Yes, yeah, sinful. Um, I mean, anyone who's never experienced play or sports or makeup. Hmm. No makeup in the Stuart era. He must have thought his wife was beautiful without it. Yeah, but he had warts, so she probably didn't think the same. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, he's... uh, Apparently, it's not confirmed, obviously, because firstly, it would require access to his body, which is a little bit tricky. But secondly, medical records weren't that great back then because they believed that, you know, a cure for... the plague and a headache was cutting a pigeon in half and tying it to the bottom of each foot so medical records weren't great um, but it's believed that he may have suffered from some sort of urinary or kidney complaints like kidney stones something like that um and towards the end of his life he, he died quite young i think he was only 59 um he contracted malaria which turned into a fever um he had a urinary infection as well and possibly septicemia wow. Add to that the fact that um, this is all in 1658. In August, his daughter Elizabeth, who was believed to be his favourite daughter, um, she died from what we think might be cancer. And apparently that sent him into a spiral. And uh, his health just declined from there. And then a month later, on Friday 3rd of September, um, 1658, he passed away. Mm. So no more Oliver Cromwell. Genuinely, that is sad. I don't want to sound sarcastic. Yeah, I mean, you know, he's he was that racked with grief that his own his own health just dropped. Yeah. And I mean, he must have been, he must have been really ill. He must have been in incredible pain at the end, both emotionally and physically. Yeah. Bless him. 
So whatever your personal leanings towards him are, that's yeah, it's awful. But in his death, he kind of proves slight even more hypocritical because he and his daughter they both received elaborate funerals. Mm-hmm. Although Cromwell's was based on the funeral of King James the first. Yeah, based on the the man whose son he had killed. Yeah, and uh, he was buried in a new vault in mm-hmm. Westminster Abbey in the Henry the Seventh Chapel. So he had a Ouch. king's funeral buried in a king's chapel in Westminster Abbey where all the other royals have been buried. Yeah. Mr. I hate the royals. His son, or one, one of his sons, Richard, um, yeah. he succeeded him as Lord Protector. He wasn't very good. Um, he, was, mm-hmm. he was pretty ineffective, fairly weak, to be honest with you. And um, he was forced to resign in May 1659. So you're talking about, pff, what, nine months? Give or take. Um, yeah, he was forced to resign, and that was the end of the protectorate. Um, the Commonwealth, it, they didn't really have any leadership. They were kind of like a riddler ship at that point. Um, Parliament was reinstated, as it was before, um, before the Commonwealth. And they then invited back Charles II, who was the son of Charles I, in 1660. And that was the monarchy restoration. So we were a republic for 11 years. Yeah. Tried it. Didn't like it. Brought back the king. Tried it. Got the t-shirt. Yep. So uh, brought back partying. Yes, indeed. And happier days. You say happier days. Yeah. (laughs) One of the very first things um, that King Charles II did was um, on the thirtieth of January, sixteen sixty-one. Oliver's body, along with that of John Bradshaw, who was president of the High Court of Justice for the child of Henry the First, oh, right. Henry the First, Charles the First, yeah. and Henry Ayrton, uh, Cromwell's son-in-law and general to the Parliament Army during the Civil War. Right. They were their bodies. So you got Oliver's body, um, John Bradshaw's body, and Henry Ayrton's body. Mm-hmm. They were taken from Westminster Abbey, and they were posthumously put on trial for high treason. And executed again in inverted commas (laughs) because they were already dead, and um, it was symbolically it symbolically coincided with the twelfth anniversary of the execution of Charles the First. So it's kind of like revenge for Charles the Second after a fashion with someone he couldn't really get revenge on. Yeah, and so then the three bodies were hung from the gallows at Tyburn in chains before being beheaded at sunset. They were then thrown in a common grave. Mm. And their heads were displayed on 20-foot spikes at Westminster Hall, where they stayed until a storm broke them in 1685, throwing their heads to the ground below. So the, that was in 1661, and their heads remained on a spike until 1685. So that's like, what, 20, 24 years? 24 years. So I'm assuming they would have been... Because at that point, they would have been pretty mouldy and manky anyway. Yeah, they would have been... been skulls by that point because they would have been eaten by birds and stuff yeah no i mean um when they got them out of the ground so they, they oh were yeah when they got them out of the like, ground yeah. yeah i mean they were entombed and embalmed so they probably would have been a bit better preserved than say a normal coffin in the ground but that's still nearly two years mm-hmm. and then they probably would have been tarred to preserve them as much as possible but yeah as you say birds i mean okay and just imagine walking walking underneath or walking along westminster hall and then splat cromwell's skull on the floor yeah. Yeah. Charles II really did not like uh, Cromwell and obviously wanted to, I guess, humiliate him because that's quite 
a harsh thing to do and he's already been dead for like what three four years yeah they give him a trial yeah they find him guilty of treason they then execute him they execute a dead person i mean i don't i don't agree with it i can see why he did it Mm. um because obviously he would want to make he would want to get his revenge on a personal level because it was his dad yeah. And he was he was fairly young when it happened, wasn't he? Mm. Um so he lost his dad and then he had to fight to get back what technically by rights was his. Yeah. Um and it was quite a bloody battle because weren't we reading that he he was engaged in battle at one point when he was 11? Yep. I mean that's that's you know in the battle of Edge Hill. Yeah. You, you don't think about things like that. So in this day and age, but you know he he was a child soldier because of Cromwell and mm. Cromwell's people. So he would have been angry, but also he would have had to have made a statement yeah. in that this does not go unpunished, Parliament don't get any ideas. Yeah, I think he wanted to assert some authority, yeah. definitely. I mean, he would, have, he would have had to have made concessions when they brought him back, so Parliament would still have some power. Yeah. But I think he, he wanted to make it clear. I mean, he could have technically executed Cromwell's son Richard. Mm. Technically. Technically. But I think it was more of a point executing those three. Well, yeah. In inverted commas. Yeah, because I was already yeah. dead. Um, but that wasn't the end of it for, um, for him. See, Cromwell, whatever you think of him, he had respect for the dead. Because when Charles Charles I was beheaded, he had his head sewn back on to allow the family to pay their respects. However, after it fell from the spike, Cromwell's head was actually found by a soldier who hid it in his chimney. For a while. Yeah. Um, he then... Afterwards, this soldier who had the head of the Lord Protector in that's been up there for like 20 no, now like 25, 26 years dead, then he bequeathed it to his daughter in his will. So his daughter now has it. I mean, <laughs> talk about family heirlooms. Um, and then in 1710, the head appeared in a freak show and it was described as the monster's head. Wow. No matter what he did, no matter how many civilians, I, I don't think he deserved that. I mean that's that's harsh, um, but it's that it didn't end there. It's it changed hands several times. Um, each time it actually increased in value, so people were paying more and more to buy the head of the Lord. Protector. Oh yeah, it happens. It would be nowadays, wouldn't it? Yeah, that's true. I mean, there's always that sort of morbid curiosity. Like the macabre. There? Yeah, and the, the macabre, the macabre sells. I yeah. mean, it really does. Um, eventually, it was bought by a Dr. Wilkinson. Um, we don't know much about him, but we, what we do know is that his family later deno- donated it to the Sydney Sussex College, which, if you remember, that was the college that Cromwell went to. This was in 1960. So this was in living memory. His head was given back to the Sydney Sussex College. Um, they've, uh, they've buried it in a secret place in the college grounds. There is a plaque that says, near here, his head um, is yeah. resting but no one knows the exact burial place because obviously you know it's I mean even though it's a well respected college in Cambridge there are still those that would want to dig it up and mm. make a show of it um, however his daughter Elizabeth um, she actually she interceded or tried to intercede with her father and when he was alive for mercy on behalf of royalist supporters um, and because of that she remains she's the only or one of the only Cromwellians that still is in Westminster Abbey the others were exhumed and removed under Charles um because of what she did she's still there although ironically a lot of the illegitimate descendants of Charles II are now buried with her oh 
so yeah it's a bit awkward <laughs> but um yeah and uh that's basically Cromwell in a nutshell that's that's what we've learned about about him I've learned a lot about him to be fair yeah. like I didn't like him I'm still not a biggest fan mm. um because I don't like I don't think that he had the right to try king for treason when treason is against the king I think he was doing it for treason against the country but the king is the representative of the country <laughs> yeah. so yeah so I, mean, I don't like that but I don't think he had a very happy like having to leave school to be the man of the house and yeah. all of that responsibility and then his wife we don't know how much he was um swayed and not not brainwashed per se but um massively into the puritan side of religion through his wife and his wife's family yeah so a lot of cousins wasn't it yeah so I'm, i have a bit more sympathy and understanding for him but i'm i still get a bit it's a bit thick in the back of my throat. I think it's it's set a very dangerous precedent, killing a king. Um, because you, the king was supposed to be untouchable. You were supposed to have that that monarchy there. He was set up on a, on another level. And whilst yeah, that much power shouldn't rest with one person. You still need that figurehead to keep the masses in check, because peasants will revolt because peasants are revolting. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't help that. Um, but yeah, I think I think it's mostly the hypocrisy of some of the stuff that he did that sticks yeah. with me. Yeah. But um, here's an interesting fact for you. Okay. In uh, 1940, did you know that uh, Cromwell was used as a code word to warn of imminent German invasion? Oh, really? Yeah. And uh, apparently, Sir Winston Churchill tried to get the monarchy to approve of the naming of the HMS Oliver Cromwell. All right. Oddly enough, it didn't get royal approval. Shocking. Can't think why. Go on, George V, <laughs> you can do this. <laughs> so, yeah, it was... Um, yeah, he's uh, he's an interesting figure. He's still an enigma. I think there's still more that we can learn about him. And it's I think it's inspired me to read up more, especially about his military work. Because mm. I, I, do, I do admire a good military man, a good commander. So I'd be, I'd be intrigued to learn more about him. He's not going to be... Uh, we, we will never call him a babe. He's not a historical babe. Sorry, Oliver. <laughs> no. But uh, no. I mean, you're an interesting guy, warts and all, but uh, you warts don't quite rank. Uh, yeah, warts and all. See what I did there? Look what you did. <laughs> right, um, we normally try to do, aside from the Battle of Britain 1, obviously because it, uh, it was a bit of a poignant one anyway, Yeah. we've tried to do a ridiculous death. Yes, and I have a ridiculous death for you, but also a kind of ridiculous survival to go with the Battle of Britain one. So we kind of, we've got one of each. Yeah. So the uh, ridiculous survival is a game of a hide-and-seek champion. Oh, right, okay. Yeah, so Charles I's son, um, the future King James II, so another one of Charles I's sons, mm-hmm. um, he was imprisoned at St. James's Palace along with his siblings following the arrest of his father, Right. Um, his eventual escape from the palace, however, was facilitated by a game of hide-and-seek. Oh. Yeah, James was so adept at the game that it once took half an hour to find him. Oh, that's cool. And people saw that he was good, and obviously it was known. Um, so if you played a game of hide-and-seek, it wouldn't have been suspicious. Mm-hmm. Uh, so on the, but on the 20th of April, uh, 1648, um, it was used as a cover to sneak him out of the palace grounds. Um, and down the river. He was dressed in women's clothes and he escaped London to stay at The Hague with his sister, the Princess of Orange. Oh, that's clever. Yeah. That's actually, that's a really good way of doing it. So I they mean, played a giant game of hide and seek and he escaped. 
I mean, later on, when he became King James II and uh, William, Duke of Orange, actually invaded, that was a major game of hide-and-seek that led to him never taking the throne again. <laughs> but that's a story for another time. Yes. So, now on to the death. Okay, I'm not sure how much I agree with it, but on the website I've got it, it's uh, entitled Stop Hitting Yourself. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh. This, I mean, it must have been a horrific thing for this guy to go through. But <laughs> Definitely. Uh, so during the Second English Civil War, mm-hmm. um, there was a guy, Sir Arthur Aston. Yeah, he's the one that um, was the royalist commander at Droida. Yes. Um, he met with a particular gruesome fate. Oh. Uh, when the town was captured mm-hmm. on the 11th of September 1649, Parliament forces beat him to death. What you might not know about Sir Arthur Aston... Is that he had a wooden leg. I think I know where you're going with this. Yeah, they beat him to death with his own wooden leg. Ooh. So not only did they like beat him to death, they took his wooden leg so he couldn't exactly run away. <laughs> they took his wooden leg and then beat him to death with it. Uh, oh no. It's not necessarily oh, no. it's not a funny death at all, but that is just I'm sorry. It's, all, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. All I've got in my head right now is a sketch from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. It's just a scratch. It's just a scratch. Your legs come off. It's just a scratch. Oh God. Sorry. Yeah. It's very irreverent. Um, so yeah, oh, that's, our, that's so our ridiculous death goes to Sir Arthur Aston this evening for being beaten to death with his own wooden leg. And I shall never complain about a splinter again. <laughs> <laughs> right. Until next week. We'll speak to you next Tuesday. Yep. Good night from Tarvis After Hours. Bye.